Good morning. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2009, and this is Music 316. We didn't meet yesterday because I was sick, and we had a technical difficulty with our live podcast today. So this is a quick summary of what we talked about today. When we left off last week, we were looking at um, instruments that came into China via the Silk Road, and we were focusing attention on a pear-shaped lute, a lute with a wooden body that is shaped approximately like a pear with a round bottom and tapering up towards the top, where instead of a stem, you have the neck of the lute. The neck, like the pear, the stem of the pear, is quite a bit shorter than the body of the lute, so technically the pipa is a short-necked lute. And we saw how the pear-shaped short-necked lute spread in all directions from West Asia or Central Asia, uh, both East and West. It spread East to China, where it became known as the Pipa, and went on even farther East to Japan, where it became known as the Biwa. But it also spread West throughout the Middle East, throughout West Asia and North Africa, where it became known as Al-Ud. And from there into Europe, where it became known as a lute. And so this is, in one sense, the granddaddy of all lutes, because this is where we get our name for the instruments called lutes, that is, chordophones or stringed instruments with a body, a neck, and strings that run down the neck and over the body. The biwa, or in Japan, or the pipa in China, has four strings, and it has wooden frets on the body. And if we watch and listen to a player playing the biwa, or the pipa, here's a Chinese player. We see that the strings are easy to reach. The frets help the player move his fingers quickly from one place on the string to another place. And so in a way, he doesn't even have to see where his fingers are touching the string because he can feel where those frets are. And he can jump from one place to another in the blink of an eye and play these extremely fast passages. Right now he's watching his right hand move on the lower part of the string and he isn't watching where his fingers are moving on the upper part of the string because the frets are guiding him by touch. He doesn't even have to look where he's touching the strings. And that lets him move extremely fast when he wants to from one place to another. And so you can play really fast moving music on the pipa and that makes it a world apart musically from the chin, which is ideal for slow, kind of dreamy, relaxed music but you do have to watch on the chin because there are no frets and you have to watch the little inset ivory or light colored dot that tell you where you place your fingers on the chin. The chin is a slower, deliberative, contemplative, relaxing kind of instrument. The pipa lends itself to fast, exciting kinds of music. And that has a couple of results. First of all, the pipa demands a virtuoso technique. It demands expertise 
that can only be learned by hours and hours of daily practice. Kipa becomes your full-time job if you're a musician, and that means that you have to become a professional musician in order to do well at playing the Kipa. And this is extremely different from the chin, because remember, chin players couldn't be professional musicians. They had a day job. They were the government officials. They were the Secretary of Agriculture and the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of Foreign Affairs. They were the people who ran the government. They were the bureaucrats. They were the administrators. They were people who went to work in the morning and went home at night. And when they had rested a little and eaten, then they turned to their music. But the music was part of a well-rounded extracurricular life, separate from their day job. Not so for the pipa players. The best pipa players were full-time pipa players, and that was what they did. That was how they earned their living and earned their paycheck. The best pipa players were very flashy virtuosos. Not that there weren't other people who weren't professional musicians who wanted to play the pipa and did play the pipa, and some of them became very good at it, but they had to do it in their spare time. They were shopkeepers, they were uh, people with other kinds of jobs who managed to steal the time from somewhere to learn this extremely difficult instrument and to play its extremely difficult music because the people really called out for fast, exciting kinds of music. And that meant that you remember in China there is such a high value placed on programmed music, music that paints a picture. The music of the pipa painted pictures of primarily fast, exciting kinds of things, unlike the philosophical subjects of the chin, the beauties of nature, the slow flowing streams, the songs of birds, and so on. Unlike that, the music of the pipa was fast and tended to depict things like races and exciting conflict. And of course, ancient China, like other large countries, was often involved in war with other people, that is, people from outside and people from inside. Why did you have a great wall of China? Because there were constant invasions and wars with people outside. And how did China become the world's largest unified country, the empire of China? by overcoming all of the many times that there were wars and um, attempts at independence by part within China. And so those wars and their stories became part of Chinese folklore, part of Chinese art, and inevitably part of Chinese music. The piece that we'll see in here on the pipa here is called Ambush from All Sides, or The Hero's Defeat. And it tells the story of a Chinese general who led his army out, out from the city through the Great Wall and out into the barbarian lands beyond the Great Wall, where he met an overwhelming force of many thousands of enemy soldiers who lay in ambush, hidden from him, lured him into the ambush, and defeated the Chinese army, killed the brave general, and killed many of his soldiers as well. This is an anonymous piece of music. Sometimes it is attributed to the Taoist philosopher and musical composer Wang Wei, and we don't know for sure if Wang Wei actually 
wrote this piece, but it is a beautiful, exciting piece of music that vividly depicts the scenes of the battle. We're going to hear in this piece Wu Ziying. We have heard from Wu Ziying before in this class. He was the performer of our second version of Wine Madness on the Qin, and here he changes to a completely different instrument with a completely different aesthetic. Ziying Wu, Wu Ziying, playing the pipa in a performance of Ambush from All Sides. First we hear the trumpets calling the soldiers to arms, and the soldiers will come and line up in their rows and ranks and get ready to march. and take their place. The foot soldiers, the cavalry mounted on their horses, the enlisted men, the officers, everybody getting into place and getting ready to leave for war. slowly the army begins to move out song. Is this the song that the soldiers are singing? Is it a song that drifts through the imagination of the leaders of the general remembering the country they're leaving behind, the beautiful landscape and their loved ones that they're forced to live behind now as they go off to war? and they're hoping to see again soon. But the march begins to pick up speed as the soldiers move out on the long road towards battle.
and inexorably, beat by beat, the thousands of feet march ahead off to war. see enemies ahead and they fight some quick skirmishes and they speed up in pursuit of the enemy Quick march now as they try to catch the enemy and trap them. And faster and faster as they rush ahead trying to catch up with a few enemy soldiers. And they're running as fast as they can. But what they don't know is that there are enemy soldiers hiding on all sides of them. sudden everything is total chaos as enemy soldiers spring out everywhere and attack. Chinese army struggles to resist, but they have been overtaken and defeated by a superior force. And so it ends with the hero's defeat, caught in the ambush from all sides. An amazing performance of an amazing work on the people. Other instruments were also entering China from the West.
from the barbarian countries to the north and west of China. The instrument you see here is another kind of lute, very different from Motipa. Look how small the body is. It's about the size and shape of a Coca-Cola can or a beer can. The can is made of wood. Sometimes in smaller sizes it's made of bamboo. And the front of it is covered by a snake skin. And on that snake skin is a bamboo bridge over which the strings pass. The strings run down this very, very long neck. The neck is eight or ten times perhaps longer than the length of the body. So this is technically a long neck flute because the neck is very long in relationship to the body, unlike the short neck pipa, where the body is much longer than the neck. The arhu has two strings. They are made of silk. It's played with a bow. The bow rubs across the strings. The bow is a wooden stick with horsetail hair and the horsetail hair is rough, and the rough texture of the, t of the hair rubs against the silk strings of the instrument and makes the strings vibrate. The player holds the bow in her right hand, and she fingers the strings with her left hand. It has no frets, and the string can't be pressed against the neck because it, sta it stands too far out from the neck. So this is an instrument that is a little harder to play fast than the pipa, although players do some amazingly fast work on the arhu too, as we'll hear in our recorded example. The arhu comes originally from the border area around Tibet and Mongolia. In that area, the body of the instrument was made not from wood or bamboo, but from the horn of a yak. A yak is a hairy cow a relative of the domestic cow, but one that was tamed in this part of the world by Tibetans and Mongolians and a few other people and became a domestic equivalent of the cow. The strings in the Tibet-Mongol border region were not silk, but rather made of horse's tail hair or of gut. The instrument spread into China around the same time as the pipa during the Tang dynasty from the 7th through the 9th centuries A.D. and became a very widely popular instrument played both by professional and amateur musicians. One of the interesting things is that you can see that the horse's hair on the bow are passing by the strings, perpendicular to the strings, but what you can't see in the video, you'd have to see a close-up, is that the bow hairs actually go between the two strings of the arhu and so the player has to push up or down, or in or out, depending on how they're holding the instrument. Uh, but you have to push in one direction or another to make contact with the string. So it's very hard to play two strings at once with this instrument. Rather, you have to choose one or the other string and play it. And we'll hear how it's played tomorrow at our Wednesday class.